I invite you to take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, uh, 15, excuse me, as we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17 in a message I've entitled, As I Have Loved You. And you'll see in just a moment that I lifted that title right from the text that we're going to be considering this morning. Most of you, if you've been around, are probably familiar or can remember the craze that kind of swept modern evangelicalism called WWJD, or What Would Jesus Do? And that question, what would Jesus do, was a question through which it was suggested that we kind of interpret lives and respond and react to different situations that we go through. And that question, what would Jesus do, is not a bad question insofar as you recognize its particular limitations. Because there are many things that Jesus would do in a situation that you can't do. (laughs) There are things he would do that we aren't capable of doing. So let me give you a couple of for instances. So for instance, let's say you go to Walmart and you're heading into the doors and you see there in a handicapped parking space, this gentleman who's trying to get out of his van into his wheelchair and he's lifting himself up into the wheelchair. You might think, well, what would Jesus do? I'm gonna go over and help him into the wheelchair. Well, that's not what Jesus would do. Jesus would go over and heal the man and say, get rid of your wheelchair. That's what Jesus would do. Or let's say you're driving down Cummings Highway and you see heading in your direction a hearse and a funeral procession. You say, well, what would Jesus do? Well, I'll get to the side of the road in honor of that family. And you should do that. But that's not what Jesus would do. He would get out of the car, stop the procession, walk over to the hearse and raise the dead man to life. That's what Jesus would do. But perhaps of greatest importance is with regard to our own sinfulness and our own personal lostness. What should we do about the sin in the world? What should we do about the sin in our family, the depravity in, in culture, in society? What would Jesus do? He would die for it. And that is exactly what he did. So I think a better question is not what would Jesus do, but how would Jesus love? And that's the question I believe we'll ask ourselves as we look at the passage today, because Jesus is going to repeat the new commandment that he gave in chapter 13. We considered that passage the first uh, Sunday in May. I want to remind you the new commandment Jesus gave in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Jesus almost verbatim repeats the new commandment in our passage this morning. This is what I command you, love one another, just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. But here's where it gets different. In the passage before us today, he actually gives some very clear and concrete realities that demonstrate how Jesus has loved us. And with each of these realities, I'm going to point three of them out. It's impossible for us to do those things. It's impossible for us to do the things that Jesus is going to describe he does in demonstration of his love for us. So again, the question is not what would Jesus do, but how would Jesus love? What can we learn from the ways that Jesus has demonstrated his love for us 
of how we are supposed to love one another. That is indeed the point of the text. So look with me in your Bibles at John chapter 15. We're going to begin reading in verse 12. This is the infallible word of the Lord. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide." so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Again, Jesus here in John 15 is expanding upon the new commandment he gave his apostles in John 13. And it should be noted that this further explanation of the new commandment Love one another as I have loved you. It's coming right on the heels of what we studied last week, namely about the vine and the branches, that we bear much fruit if we abide in the vine. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And I told you last week, the primary fruit that Jesus is referring to with the fruit we produce is the fruit of love. And then from that fruit of love, the other spiritual fruit that Paul talks about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And I know this is a connection here because he repeats the word fruit in our passage today, and he also repeats the word abide. So there's this obvious connection. So we are commanded by the Lord to love one another. Look around the room for a second. You're commanded by the one you say you submit to as your Savior to love one another. Well, how are we supposed to love each other? Jesus says, as I have loved you. So I think it'd be helpful for us to consider and contemplate just how Jesus has loved us as he's demonstrated and told us in the text for us today. So three ways Jesus has loved us, and I've got an application question for each one so that we can know and consider and ponder how we can love one another. Here's the first point. Number one, He loved us, and it's described through the cost of his atonement. His love is described by him for us through the cost of his atonement. Jesus' love was costly. It was sacrificial. And he sacrificed that he might atone, make payment for our sinfulness. Look again at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You know, it's difficult for us to talk about the sacrifice of Jesus, the costly sacrifice of Jesus in human terms because of the divine nature of that love. This verse is often used to describe people, uh, soldiers who have given the ultimate sacrifice in defense of our nation's freedom. Greater love has no one than this than that someone laid down his life for his friends. But even the costly sacrifice of, let's say, a soldier 
or a police officer in defense of society or our nation, that pales in comparison to the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. In fact, I want you to consider a few realities about the cost of Jesus's sacrificial atonement for us that we can see here. The first one is this, Jesus's death was not inevitable. Our death is inevitable. I've checked the statistics and they're still the same. 100%, you're going to die. We're all going to die. Every single one of us will die. But guess what? Though our death is inevitable, Jesus's death was not inevitable. Did he ever sin? No. Well, the wages of sin is death. So Jesus did not sin, which would procure death. Because Jesus was immortal, it was not necessary for him to die. That was not an inevitable end for him. In fact, Jesus even claimed that all life is bound up in him. Notice what he said in John 11. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. You can't take Jesus's life from him. He would not die. It was not inevitable. He could have come to this earth, had a full and meaningful ministry of healing, of preaching, of proclaiming the kingdom of God, and then he could have returned to the Father without ever experiencing death. On the other hand, each one of us, Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed unto man once to die. We're all going to die. You know, when someone's life is cut short, kind of in the prime of their life, we would say they had a premature death. Jesus's death was not a premature death. He was never going to die. His death was not inevitable. And this is what's so amazing about his love for us. He died purposefully, but not inevitably. Here's the second thing about Jesus's death, and that is Jesus's death was premeditated. His death is exceptional because he came to this earth for the express purpose of dying. It was premeditated. He set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, to die, to make the costly sacrifice for the atonement of our sins. You know, many people will make calculated risks that put them in danger for the service of others, in place of others. People will jump into oceans and rivers to save people. That's a calculated risk. People will run into burning buildings to save people. That's a calculated risk. Even soldiers, 19 and 20-year-olds out on the battlefield, most of them, they think, well, the bullet's not really going to hit me. <laughs> yeah, other people will die, but most 19 and 20-year-old young men think they're invincible, right? I was a 19 and 20-year-old young man. That's kind of what we think. But there's still the risk. Jesus went into this whole deal with the premeditated intention, I will die. Look at what he said in John 10. No one takes it from me, his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. 
What kind of authority is that? To, in a premeditated way, and determined way, to give himself to die for our salvation. Well, there's another reason and way that the love of Christ shines through, through his costly sacrificial atonement. It's this. Third, Jesus' death was undeserved. We didn't deserve Jesus to die for us. Now, he says here he died for his friends. He laid his life down for his friends. But here's the reality of the situation. We have not always been his friends. It's like the song we just sang. We were his enemies. We were hostile to God. Now we have a seat at the table, but that's not always been the case. In fact, Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's true, uh, Jesus calls us friends, but it's also true that we become friends. You weren't born a friend of God. You weren't a friend of God by your your likability, by your deservedness, by your worthiness. But because of the amazing grace that's been given to us, because of his atonement through his death, we have been called friends. Paul describes in multiple locations in his his epistles our pre-friend status, what that was like. I want to show you one of them in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. His grace is further manifested towards us in this, that in our state of natural rebellion, hostility, alienation from God and with God, he sends forth his Holy Spirit to overcome and to overwhelm our sinfulness, to overwhelm our depravity, and to draw our hearts and our minds and our wills to Christ, that we might repent. It was while we were in the state of being enemies with God, Christ died for us. You're not worthy of his death. You don't deserve the death of Jesus. Here we especially consider the love of the Lord. You see, so long as we consider ourselves and reckon ourselves as being uh, somewhat good in God's sight, we'll never fully grasp the amazing love of Jesus. That even in our state of complete and total undeservedness, Christ died for us. May we see the, un- the surpassing glory and beauty of the love of Jesus. But there's another reason I'd point out that the love of Jesus is seen in his costly sacrifice, and it's this. Jesus' death was spiritual. Spiritual. Now, it was not only spiritual, don't hear me wrong, but it was spiritual. We normally think of death in only physical terms. Death is when the heart stops beating, the lungs stop breathing, the brain neurons stop firing. That's physical death. And Jesus certainly experienced physical death. When he was placed in the grave, he was dead. Dead, dead. Not mostly dead, as Max would say. He is fully dead. Completely dead, physically. 
Now, what is death? Uh, we know from the Bible, the perspective is this. Death physically is when the soul separates from the body. Paul said, absent from the body. Your soul, when you die as a Christian, is present with the Lord. That's physical death. So what is spiritual death? If physical death is when the soul separates from the body, spiritual death is when the soul is separated from God. When the soul is separated from God. When we consider Jesus' death, we understand this spiritual death is what makes hell so abhorrent and repulsive. It's terrible. It is tormenting. You know, some idiots would say, I can't wait to go to hell and have a party with all my friends. Hell is the absence of God. What that means, it's the absence of joy. It's the absence of peace. It's the absence of happiness. There is no laughter in hell. It's the absence of meaning. It's the absence of all things good. Why? Because God is the source of all those things. So when you go to hell, you are separated from all the good that God has given you. Whether or not you're a Christian, you're enjoying the the common grace of God. All joy, all happiness, all laughter, all peace comes from God. So absence from God is torment, ultimate misery, unrest, hostility, depression, pain. And so in addition to Jesus dying physically in our place, his soul was separated from his body. Jesus on the cross died spiritually in our place. I want you to feel the weight of this. For the first time in eternity, God the Son and God the Father were separated. We're out of communion. You go through the four Gospels and you do a study on when Jesus prayed, particularly the Lord's Prayer. He addresses God always, without fail, every single time as Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, right? Father, 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 Father. There's one prayer that Jesus offers in all four gospel accounts where he does not address God as Father. And it's on the cross, recorded in Matthew 27. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And friend, it is in that instance when the soul of Jesus was separated from God. He took spiritual death. He took hell, concentrated and condensed in that moment for you. Do you see the love? This is incomprehensible to us. All these realities, they're included in Jesus' statement. Greater love. Do you have any idea? Greater love has no one than this, than that someone would lay down his life for his friends. 
This is what Jesus has done, and this is what only Jesus can do. You can't do that. You can't die a spiritual death in someone else's place. Only Christ could. So we can't do that. So the question, what would Jesus do? It doesn't apply here. But how does Jesus love? As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. So here's my application question. Look at the next slide. Who can I sacrifice for today? If Jesus' love is costly, if it is sacrificial, if it is laying aside his rights, his wants, his privilege, his prerogative to meet your deepest need, here's the application. Love one another in the same way I have loved you. Someone may come to your mind. Who can I sacrifice for today? They write their initials next to that question. That's the first way we see Jesus describe his love for us in this passage, the cost of his atonement. That leads to the second thing I want us to consider. Number two, the communion of his adoption. The communion of his adoption. On multiple occasions in this passage, Jesus uses the term friends. He's talking to those 11 knuckleheads, friends. The Greek word there for friends is the Greek word. It's a noun, philos. It's related to the verb you've probably heard of, phileo. That is a love. You may have even heard people, preachers, myself included, compare and contrast agape love and phileo love. Agape love is this unconditional love, and then phileo love is this kind of brotherly love, this relational love. When Lazarus was sick, his sisters, Mary and Martha, sent a message to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, please come quick. The one you phileo is sick unto death. That's a brotherly affection. Jesus had this brotherly affection for Lazarus. And here he uses the noun form for his disciples and by extension for us. (laughs) He says, you're my friends. We have this relationship of love and care. You know, we can put all kinds of labels on people, political labels, cultural labels, but I don't think there's a better label we can put on ourselves than I'm Jesus' friend. What a label. He phileo, he loves me. And that label is put right there by Jesus himself. Look at 14 and 15 again. He says, you are my philos, my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, Jesus calls us friends. He calls these disciples who would be the apostles of the church, the founders of the church. He calls them friends. But did you know that throughout the New Testament, particularly in the epistles of these apostles, they refer to themselves still as servants? Look at a couple. Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 1. He says, Simon Peter, writing this letter, a servant, same word, doulos, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul used this term over and over again in all of his epistles. I'm Paul, a servant, a doulos, a slave, bond slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. 
It's almost as if Paul delighted in that title of being a slave, of being a servant of Jesus. And that is indeed one of the chief privileges of being a Christian. We're servants of Christ. We're servants of the Lord. So what Jesus is conveying in this passage is not that we're no longer servants. Watch this. But we're not merely servants. We are also his friends. We're his friends. We have been elevated in our relationship status to that of not just servitude, not just submission, but of being his relational companion, even his confidant. I'll illustrate it like this. We moved to Chattanooga in 1999, and we moved here because I was called to be the associate pastor of students at Silverdale Baptist Church. My brother, Tony, was on staff at the church as well. He, too, was an associate pastor. His title was associate pastor of education. So as I come on staff in 1999, he and I are equal colleagues, both associate pastors serving under the leadership of our senior pastor. Well, about a year and a half into my ministry at Silverdale, our senior pastor goes to a church in Atlanta, and about two weeks later, Silverdale called my brother to become the senior pastor. What does that mean? Well, now he's my superior. He's my boss. How's that for a little brother, having your brother as your boss? Well, that was great. No, I'm just kidding. It was awesome. So listen, I'm serving at his bequest. When he gives me a directive, Troy, I need you to do this. Guess what? I did it. But because we were philos, brotherly love, he pulled me in regularly as his confidant. So I got this issue with his situation. What do you think? There's a staff conflict here. What's your thoughts on the matter? We're considering, what do you think about us purchasing this piece of property? If you've ever been over there and seen the whole uh, athletic complex, Tony and I drove that property together because of our brotherly affection and trust. So there was this confidence. There was this affection, this connection. But yet again, if he said, Troy, I heard what you did on that lock-in, that was not a good choice for a youth pastor, which would happen. I submitted to his authority to an infinitely greater degree. Jesus is our boss. He's our senior pastor, if you will, the chief shepherd. But he's not just our boss because of our adoption. Because Romans 8 says he has given you the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. Guess what? Jesus is our older brother. He's our philos, our phileo, our friend. And because of that, watch this, he has brought us in to his confidants. He has brought us in to his divine mind. He has brought us in to his eternal counsel. It's exactly what he says in our text. Look at verse 15 again. For the servant, is what you just formerly were, just a servant, does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all, everything total that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Is this not incredible? 
That because we have been elevated to this status of being the friend of Jesus, the king of the cosmos, the ruler of the universe says, come here, I got some things I want to tell you that are secret that I'm only going to share with my friends. This is fantastic. And the fundamental dynamic of our relationship here is that he has called us friends and he lets us know his purposes for history. He lets us know his plans for the future. He lets us know how he is working. He entrusts to us his promises and entrusts to us his mission for his kingdom. Paul even said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that we are not ignorant of the devil's devices. Why aren't we ignorant of the devil's devices and schemes? Because our older brothers told us about them. He's let us into the info. That's what friends do, right? They open up their hearts and they share their deepest thoughts. That's how it works. Jesus brings us into his counsel through the scripture and the spirit who applies that scripture and we commune with him through prayer. That's how the relationship works. Yet even as friends, even as his close confidants, even as the younger siblings in the adopted family of God, guess what? We still obey his commands. That's what he said in verse 14. Look at it again. You are my friends. Here's the proof. If you do what I command you. You obey what I tell you to do. You're my friends. We're co-laborers. We're siblings, if you will. But friends of Jesus necessarily obey what he commands. That's what he said in Matthew 17. This is the true test of being a friend. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, ruler, ruler, boss, boss, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And friends, this is not salvation by works, but rather a salvation that necessarily involves obedience to the commands of Christ. I've repeated this over and over, but it's important for us to remember. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, You're not saved by any works, by any obedience to the commands of Christ, but the faith that saves is never alone. But the motivation for that obedience, particularly in this passage, is the fact that Jesus has brought us into close communion with him as friends. So how does this apply to us? How can we love in this same way that Jesus has loved us? How can we love one another? Here's my next application question. What relationship can I foster today? Think about the relationships with other believers you have, and particularly those in your family of faith here known as Lookout Valley Baptist Church. What are some relationships that you can foster? Relationships of accountability, care, training, discipleship, love. How can you move to a place of trust, of communion, of intimacy, of confidence? This is how Christ has loved us. And he says, in the same way I've loved you, brought you into this intimate relationship, you also are to love one another. And that leads right to the third way Christ describes his love for us that demonstrates how we're to love for one another, have love for one another, not only through the cost of his atonement and the communion of his adoption, but thirdly, the commission from his appointment. Jesus demonstrates his love for us by choosing us 
calling us and commissioning us to be on mission for him, to accomplish his divine purposes. And that's what's being communicated, especially in verse 16. There are three phrases in verse 16, and I'm going to break those three phrases down underneath this larger heading. The first, we understand this by considering his sovereign election. His sovereign election. Again, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Now, this applies specifically to these 11 disciples. We read about their calling in the first chapter of this gospel. They didn't fill out an application. They didn't submit a resume. Hey, would you consider me to be a part of the apostolic band? Jesus chose them unilaterally. He chose them. So again, this applies specifically to the disciples, but it also applies to us. He, if you're a Christian, chose you. Just let the weight of that settle on you for a moment. You did not choose me, Jesus says. I chose you. Amazing. Throughout the Bible, there are many passages that describe this sovereign grace in God's electing love. One such place is Ephesians 1. Look what Paul writes there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, while it is true that you believing in Jesus was in some way you choosing Jesus, true, you didn't choose him first. He chose you first. We decided for him only as a response to him deciding for us. As a result, his grace began to work in our lives and he enabled in us the response of faith. For by grace you have been saved, how? Through faith. But guess what? That's not of yourselves. What? I chose. No, that faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. He enabled the faith. He empowered the faith. He regenerated your dead heart to life. He chose you. And if we think that we chose him first, it only demonstrates that we don't have a full understanding of how comprehensively sinful we were. It's called total depravity. We have the capacity to choose Christ only because of his amazing grace. John, the writer of this gospel, would later in his epistle write, we love because... He first loved us. Ah, that's clear. The only reason I love Jesus is because he loved me first. The only reason I chose Jesus is because he chose me first. So we see this love demonstrated powerfully through his sovereign election. But secondly, we see it demonstrated through gospel mission, through gospel 
mission. Notice how verse 16 continues. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. I want you to circle the word that in your outline or in your Bible. It's a conjunction. Conjunction, junction. What's your function, right? Now, the Greek word there for that is the Greek word hina. You don't need to know that. But I think I've shared with you at some time in the past something that's known in Greek grammar as a hina clause. And here's the function of this conjunction hina or that. When you see it appear in the New Testament, it denotes purpose. It denotes intention. It denotes a result. So he chose us and appointed us Hinnacloth so that, in order that, you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now, last week I pointed out, and I mentioned it again this week, that the fruit I believe primarily that Jesus is talking about here is the fruit of love because of the context of the new commandment. Go and love one another. And by extension, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the, the fruit, if you will, of what is produced when we abide in the vine, when his power, the sap, is flowing through us by his Spirit. But here's the deal. The fruit that is produced in us by his Spirit is not just so you can feel good about yourself. The fruit of the spirit of love and joy and all the others is not produced in you just so you can feel like, okay, I think I'm, I'm in connection with the vine. It's produced in you for the purpose of gospel mission. There's a word in here. I want you to underline this word. The word is go. Does that make you think of anything else in the New Testament? Go. What does it make you think of? The Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Go. So here Jesus says, guess what? I've chosen you in order that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. This week is VBS. Over 90 volunteers now on the roster to be helping this week. And as Nick mentioned, many of whom will be working full days and then coming here in the evening. I don't know if you're aware of this. Children can be annoying. (laughs) Did you know that? They can be aggravating. Children can be irritating and they can be exhausting. And when we're tired, in the flesh, we can respond to the aggravation and irritation with fits of rage, with outbursts of anger. It's like there in Galatians 5 where Jesus, where, excuse me, Paul gives the fruit of the Spirit. Before he gives the fruit of the Spirit, he gives the, quote, deeds of the flesh. And included in the deeds of the flesh are fits of rage and outbursts of anger. There will be a tendency, adult workers, (laughs) that this week you get in the flesh and respond to irritating children with fits of rage and outbursts of anger. The same is true with irritating 
neighbors. <laughs> the same is true with aggravating coworkers. The same is true with exhausting family members and extended family members. But what is it that commends the gospel to them? The fruit of the Spirit. Responding with love and joy and peace and patience. And you get to the end, don't forget this one, self-control. That commends the gospel to the children this week and to our neighbors and other relationships. But here's the third and final way I want us to consider Jesus has loved us by his appointment, and that is through what I'm calling informed petition. Informed petition. Again, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Did you see that I emphasized the conjunction again? It's the same one, henna. There's another henna clause. Remember henna, clause denotes purpose, intention, result. So think about the order here. I chose you, right, so that you would go and bear fruit. I want you to go and bear fruit so that, in order that, for the purpose of, you might pray. And whatever you pray, in my Father's name, he'll give it to you. Now, if you look at this, and as I looked at it this week, I kind of thought, this is in reverse order. If I think I need to be on mission, well, let me pray about it. Hey, I'd like you to serve in VBS next week. Well, let me go pray about it, okay? I need to pray first. (laughs) We're going on a mission trip to Guatemala. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hot in October over Hamilton County's fall break. We got like 15 spaces. We got five of them filled. Let me pray about it. Yeah, pray about it. But guess what? That's not the order Jesus gives right here. He says, I've sent you on mission. Go bear fruit so that your prayers will be answered. This is bizarre. We go on mission so we'll have an effective prayer life. Notice how commentator Leon Morris put it. He said, we ought not to think of prayer as something in the nature of a tool that enables us to better service. Rather, we do better service in order that we may pray more effectively. I know like me, most of you, all of you, have had seasons where you've struggled in your prayer life. Anybody willing to confess that this morning? <laughs> we struggle in our prayer life. I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. I don't even know who to pray for. Let me tell you, you go on mission, you'll know what to pray for. You start serving in Christ's kingdom, you'll know who to pray for. Your prayers will be informed radically when you start going on mission for Christ. And as we do that, this goes right along with the command. We pray for others because we love one another as Christ has loved us, lifting one another up to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Well, that leads to the final application question, and that is this, who can I embolden today? As I was writing this uh, out this week, and I was trying to think of these application questions, when I first typed this one out, I typed out, who can I encourage today? 
And that's certainly true. We need to encourage one another. But then I, I thought about the fact that this is an application of the way Jesus loved us through his choosing of us, through his commissioning of us to be on mission with him, through involving us in prayer. I said, that's not just encouraging, that's emboldening. I've been chosen by God. I'm a friend set on mission for him. This informs our prayer life in a powerful way, and it's emboldening to us. So I want you to think about, we're called to love as Jesus loved. In the same way I've loved you, as I have loved you, you love other people. So who's somebody that you can embolden today? Who's somebody that maybe the Spirit brings to your heart and your mind? They've taken their eyes off the prize of the high calling. They're not looking at the prize. They become distracted by so many other things in this world. Who's somebody that you can embolden today to take up the mantle of obedience to the high calling of Christ? And I pray as we begin our VBS tonight that we are emboldened by the high calling of Jesus. Whether you're working in snacks or crafts or missions, or recreation. What spiritual values wreck? Huge spiritual value. Music. Did I forget one? Yeah, that's all. Security team. <laughs> Need the security team. What'd you say? Teachers. Teachers, yes. Oh, we can't forget that. <laughs> the Bible story in the classrooms. That's very important. Very, very important. I pray gospel seeds will be sown in all those areas that gospel fruit would be born out in them because of the fertile soil. I planted, Apollos watered, but God provides the increase. This is the new commandment. I command you, love one another as I have loved you, so you also are to love one other. We can't do what Jesus did, but we can love how Jesus loved. And that leads to my last thought. Our love for one another in light of Christ's love for us should be marked by one personal sacrifice. So think about it. Who can I lay my life down for today? It should be marked by intentional relationships. What relationship can I foster and build today? And it should be marked by thirdly, missional purpose. Loving like Jesus means we embolden others in the mission. Who can I embolden today? Let's go to him in prayer.